we're going to be concluding our series on God, love, and sex next week. And it's going to be Till Death Do Us Part. Okay? So, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Uh, but today we're talking about the Nike Christian, just do it. Okay, just do it. How many of you have noticed that there's a difference between people's, people's actions and their intentions? Okay, here's, I'm going I'm to just give you a little something here. How do you judge other people? Uh, uh, wait a minute, let's just qualify this. We're Christians, right? And therefore we don't judge other people, right? But how do you evaluate someone's veracity and trustworthiness? By their actions. Thank you, Janine. We judge other people by their actions, right? What they do. Now, some people do really good stuff, right? And so we're kind of drawn to people that do good stuff. And people that do bad stuff, you know, people that do stuff we don't like so much, we're kind of repelled by them, aren't we? <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, maybe I'm alone here. I don't know. Uh, but now, when we, when we evaluate ourselves, when we judge ourselves, what do we judge ourselves by? Our intentions. Yeah. You know, and how do you hear it said so often? You know, I hear it in the Christian community all the time. You know, when, when somebody does something, you know, that's not probably all that good, what do they say? Well, God knows my heart. And, you know, when I hear that said, sometimes, sometimes I kind of cringe a little bit and say, yikes, he really does know our hearts, doesn't he? And, and what does the Old Testament say about our hearts? I didn't include this today, but what do you know about your heart? The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and wicked. And then he puts this little caveat at the end. He says, who can know its ways? You know, have you ever done something that just kind of came out of the blue? You know, maybe you said something in response to what somebody else did. You know, you just kind of blurted something out and you thought to yourself, where did that come from? I'm going to tell you where it came from. It came from your heart. You know, that central part of you. And when the Old Testament talks about a person's heart, it's talking about that central part of them that kind of has their mind, their will, and their emotions all mixed together. And it's their decision-making process. It's their decision-making center that's referred to as the heart. Okay? So sometimes we like to think of our heart as what? Pure and innocent. But many times our heart is not all that pure and innocent, right? So we evaluate other people by their actions. We evaluate ourselves by our intentions. Now, how do we close that gap between our actions and our intentions? Wouldn't that be good if it was the same thing, you know, in a good way? You know, we don't want our heart to get corrupted by, and then do bad actions. But how can we get our heart and our, our intentions, you know, our actions and our intentions on the same plane so that we have the kind of heart that is reflected in the Bible. I'm going to give you three things today to help you do that. And we're going to be very brief today. I asked Clarissa this morning, I said, do you think we can be real brief today? And she says, yes, I think we can. So I'm going to honor what she thought. Okay, so here. And we have gone over this ground at the first part before. So it's going to be familiar ground to many of you, but it might be a good time for a refresher course. Number one, if you think something good, what should you do with it? Say it. If you think something good about someone, say it. Have you ever noticed how compliments many times are not delivered? It's kind of like wrapping up a Christmas gift and never giving it to anybody. You know, it's just, it just doesn't, it doesn't produce any good effect. And so what I want you to start thinking about, if you think something good, say it. 
Now we're still marching through the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs that it is referred to sometimes. And we're in chapter 7. And remember, we have a lady and a man who have gone through the courting process. They've gotten married, and now they're living their life much like we don't. Okay? What happens after a couple gets married? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, gosh. Jake and Jenny got engaged yesterday. Yeah. Nicole. So I really don't want them to hear about how real life goes, okay? Because what happens after you get married? You stop complimenting, you stop doing this, and, and you know, and, and you know, this is true. You, what do you say most often to the one that you're married to? I love you. 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 I, I, I'll talk to you later. Yeah, get some bread on the way home. Yeah, I love you. Bye. You know, and pretty soon the I love you means absolutely bupkis. You know, it means nothing. Because it's just kind of like signing off. It's like when we pray, and at the end of our prayer, we always say, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I used to think when I was growing up, that was just like big one long word. You know, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, and I didn't know that it had significance. I didn't know what it meant or anything. I just thought, well, that's what you do at the end. And kind of we get that same boat when we get married, and we get to the end of a conversation. Yeah, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. Bye. You know, and we often think, ah, oh, you know, how shallow was that? And so, therefore, I want you to start thinking in terms differently. Now, let's take a look, and I'm going to come back to this in, here in a second, and I'm going to tell you an, a word to add on to the end of that phrase that will help you tremendously, okay? Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. Now, here is Solomon talking about this woman that he loves dearly, and he's going to compliment her over and over and over again. As you read through that whole uh, book of the Bible, he compliments her over and over. Now notice, first compliment, how beautiful are your sandaled feet? Okay, let's all chuckle a little bit and say, hmm. Now, what's the difference between bare feet and sandaled feet? You know, I, I'm going to say this. Now, <laughs> and I want to be very delicate here. Uh, sandals cover up feet a little bit, right? Leave some of them exposed, but cover up a little bit. So what would be more beautiful, a beautiful foot or a sandaled foot? Depends on the feet. <laughs> it does. It depends on the feet. And sometimes the more covering, the more attractive a person can be, right? Uh, I'm just, uh, I don't know that from observation. I've just heard that. Okay. But he says this, how beautiful are your sandaled feet? And so we've got to kind of take a look and say, what's he talking about this sandaled feet thing? Well, sandaled feet were the sign of a woman who could be trusted to leave the house. Okay, that's what he's talking about. I trust you to leave the house and to be unaccompanied and unencumbered out in society. Now, in this society, the, the slaves who were in the house, they didn't trust them very much. And so, therefore, they were always barefoot. Because a barefooted person could not travel as far, and it was an identifiable feature that they weren't trusted, and so therefore you kind of had to be heads up for them. So he says, how beautiful are your sandal feet? And he's, what he's saying is, you, you don't have control. I'm not forcing you to stay home. And in this, in this culture, even to today, in this culture, you'll find a lot of dominant men who require their women to be stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home wives, and to be covered and to not be seen, okay? So he's trusting her to go out in public. She was neither controlled nor confined, okay? So she had freedom to go out. Now, what's important about this 
is that he knew that the world around him, the city around him, knew that she was his wife. And so whatever she presented herself to be was a reflection on who he was. Now, who was Solomon? He was the king of Israel. Okay? And so therefore, when his wife went in public, unconfined and unrestrained, he knew that they were going to draw some conclusions about him, but he trusted her. He, he trusted her to be loyal and honorable to his name. And that's what this whole sandaled feet thing is all about. He trusted her that much. So he's paying her a huge compliment here, isn't he? And he goes on, oh, prince's daughter. And that he identifies who she is. Now, here he goes. He says, your graceful, your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hand. Probably needs no explanation, right? He says she has, she has great legs. Okay. okay. He says, now, number three, uh, verse number three is going to require a little help. He says, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. <laughs> I'm going to suggest probably not. That's not what he's referring to. However, the navel was kind of thought in this culture as the place of her emotions. Okay, the place of emotions. Now you wonder, you know, you know, we're for, you know, for us, our society, our, our culture, we're probably very too scientific because what is a navel? It's where the umbilical cord was cut and tied. You know, we say, no significance to that. But in this culture, it was referred to as the place where her emotions dwelt. Now notice what he says. Uh, he says, uh, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Now what was wine? Okay. The navel is the place of emotions. Wine was always seen as the blessings of God, okay? The blessings of God. And so what he says is, God has blessed me with the best emotional gift I could ever receive in you. You're the best emotional gift I could ever receive, and it's all packaged in you. So again, he pays her a great compliment here. He says, and this next one is going to be a little tough. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Now, I did my research on this one. I got nothing for you. Okay. And I, I could only wish that I had been a fly on the wall when he popped this on her and just seen her reaction. You know, like, what? You know, but I'm sure she understood, and I'm sure there's some significance to it, but it has been lost. Okay. And, and then finally, he says, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. And he has said this before, hasn't he? We've heard him say this before. Apparently, it got a good response because he came back with it, you know, because Solomon's a pretty wise guy. And when things don't go well for him, he, he knows how to, uh, to change on the fly. Okay. Now, here's the instructions for you, because what did we say earlier? What did we say? Okay. There's going to be a time in which we're going to get to practice all of this stuff here in relationships. It might be a marriage relationship. It might be a friend relationship. It might be in a child-parent relationship. It might be a lot of different things. So let's take a look here. And if we, if we think something good, we're going to say it. And so here's three areas that I want you to focus in. Number one, I want you to speak words of, of uh, I'm going to get them out of order here, admiration. If I get them out of order, we'll be all messed up here. Okay, first, speak words of admiration. Now, help me for a minute. We need a little audience participation. What do you admire in people? Okay, what do you, name some things that you admire in people. Honesty, honesty okay, we have honesty. Tr what? Truth. truth, okay, truth and honesty, can okay, go together, what else? Integrity. Loyalty, integrity, help. help, 
Kindness. Okay. Now, I hope you're writing some of this stuff down here in admiration because I'm going to ask you this next week. If you're married, I want you to admire your spouse. Okay. If you have some friends, you know, let's say you're single and you have friends, I want you to admire some things about your friends. If you're a child in a parent relationship, say some things you admire about your child and children. Say some things you admire about your parents. Okay. Do we need some more help? <laughs> we might. I don't know. Uh, see me after the service if you need more help. Okay. Secondly, I want you now. What is it that's admirable? You know, let, let's qualify this. Admirable things are usually things reflecting character. Okay. Your character says this you're faithful, you're loyal, you're trustworthy, you're all of these things. And so, therefore, uh, those are things that we admire in someone else. Okay. Now, the second area, I want you to talk about things, uh, words of affection, of affection. Uh, and and how, do we, how do we differentiate things of character from things of affection? Affection is what? Emotion. Okay, emotion, things I like, you know, things that make me feel warm and fuzzy when I'm around you. And here's the things that make me feel warm and fuzzy when I'm around you. Because you're a good listener. Because you're, always, you're non-judgmental. Because you're this and you're that, okay? And so speak words of affection because it makes me drawn and feel close to you. Now, that's different than words of admiration, right? Words of admiration are things that make me want to aspire to be like you. Okay, words of affection are things that make me feel close to you. Okay? Now, third area that I want you to speak words in is words of affirmation. I affirm you. I was talking... I was talking to my daughter yesterday, and she was talking about how in her church, you know, they have all this service stuff that they do in their church, and, and, uh, and you know, and one of the ladies said, you know, uh, you know, I want you to do this, 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 and there's a long list of stuff that she wanted her to do, and she says, because I want to empower you. Was that empowerment? No. No. Most of the time when somebody wants us to do what they want done, that's not empowerment. That's called, I call it enslavement. You know, you're stuck doing stuff other people want you to do. But when we affirm people's value, we will empower them to do what? What they want to do. What they see God doing in them. Man, can I give you some help in that? Can I give you some tools to help you achieve that? Can I boost you along? Can I encourage you in whatever? That's affirmation. I want to affirm things in you. I want to affirm what God's doing in your life. I want to affirm how he's developing you. I want to affirm how he is loving you. Okay, so those are words of affirmation. Now, here's the big question. And when we get down with the list there, we say, well, why? Why do we want to do all that stuff? You know, because actually it takes a lot of work to do this, right? Let me tell you why, and we've heard this verse before. It's found in Proverbs 18:21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it You're awesome. The battery ran out. And so therefore you couldn't hear me. Okay, here it is. The tongue has the power of what? Life and death. You can speak life into someone and you can speak death into somebody. You know, you, you can kill someone's spirit real quick. 
by not affirming them, by showing that you have no affection for them, that you don't have any admiration for them. You can kill their spirit real quick. You can, you can virtually destroy a person's internal being with your words. And that's what the writer of Proverbs here says. You have the power of life and death. Now, he says you have the power of death, but you also have the power of life. You can lift somebody up. You can encourage someone. You can cause them to rise up and become everything that God has planned for their life so that they can see it, so that they can be equipped for it, so they can achieve it. You can be that kind of person in somebody else's life. Okay? So therefore, that's why this is so important. It says at the end of that verse, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Okay? Those who love the power of their tongue will eat its fruit, either good fruit or bad fruit. Okay? We can speak death into people. We can hurt people. We can demolish people. Okay? Or we can give them life. And so whatever you choose to do with your tongue... However you choose to wag it, you are going to produce that kind of fruit and you're going to eat that fruit. That's going to come back to you. Okay. Now, have you ever been in somebody, you know, have you ever gone to somebody and they got a new haircut and they're pretty proud of their haircut and you can tell they're pretty proud of their haircut. Lady got in my car the other day and she says, oh, I haven't seen you for a while. Uh, I got a haircut. And I said, it looks nice. It looks nice. I like it. She, and here's what she said. She said, I said, do you like it? I always ask women when they get a haircut, I I always ask women, do they like it? You know how many women have said, yes, I really love it? I can't remember one. Okay. You know what they always say? Well, it's a little shorter than I thought it was going to be, and it'll take me some time to get used to it. They always say that. Ladies, you're nodding, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You always say that. And so that's what she said. You know, but now if she had said, oh, I got a haircut and I had said, Oh, I didn't notice. You know, what would have been the response? What would have been the outcome of that? He doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. And here, I'm going to give you a little, little fill in here. When you don't say something good, people generally assume something bad. Okay, when somebody comes with proud news to you and they display the proud news, Jenny and Jake got engaged, and they come and say, hey, Pastor Mike, I got engaged, and I would have gone, What? You did what? They would assume bad news, right? Absolutely. And so when we don't say anything, people assume something bad. A wife gets all dressed up to go out to dinner. You know, and the husband comes home and he, you know, he puts on his jeans and his, his you know, his Bass Pro Shop shirt. <laughs> you know, guys are all about image, aren't they? You know, and, and I went the other day, Cindy wanted me to get her some this is just bonus material. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. She wanted me to get her some hairspray Ulta. Now, I don't like to go to Michael's, and I don't really don't like to go to Ulta. So I was at, walking at the mall. I said, yeah, I'll pick it up. I, so I go in, and she puts it in this bright orange bag, bright orange bag that says Ulta. And I looked at her, and I said, hey, you don't happen to have a Bass Pro Shop bag back there, do you? <laughs> you get, thought that was funny. She looked around. And goes, no. She didn't even know what a Bass Pro Shop bag was, I don't think. But anyway, so if, let's get back on track, folks. If you don't say something good, people assume something bad. If you go to pick up your wife for dinner and you got your stuff on and she's dressed up and you don't say anything largely because you're embarrassed, because you're not dressed up, and uh, you don't say anything about how she looks, she thinks, I don't look very good. You know, I did all this work. I did all this time. And uh, here I am. And... It's just assume something bad. Notice in Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 5. He continues his compliments. 
because he does not want her to think something bad about her. Now, remember, when we first started off, she had, she had kind of some, some, I don't know, some angst about how she looked, right? She, was, she had been darkened by the sun. She said, don't look at my skin. I've been darkened by the sun. And every woman has some, I, I said, well, many women have some insecurities about how they look, you know? No matter how much you love them, no matter how much you see past that, they still have this image about how they look. And now notice what what Solomon says. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. You're waiting for the compliment, aren't you? This is a huge compliment. Because there are some iconic figures in the world, aren't there? Okay. When I say Golden Gate Bridge, what city do you think of? San Francisco. When I say Hollywood sign, you all have visions of that, the Hollywood sign, how it's just kind of, you know, messed up. Okay, when iconic figures. I was listening to the radio the other day, and they were talking about Silicon Valley and how there is no iconic figure there that defines it. And so they have this contest now to figure out some iconic figure for it. Now, I don't know if that's going to work so much because I think iconic figures come as a, they're there first, and then you get it, the city built around it or whatever, and you say, that's the iconic figure. You don't just kind of drop one in there. I don't know how that works. But I say all of that to say Mount Carmel was the iconic figure. It was like on a postcard. If you went into the Walmart or the drugstore, you know, Walgreens there in downtown Jerusalem, they would have a postcard rack. <laughs> and on that postcard rack, you would see so many postcards with Mount Carmel on it. You'd say, yep, that's Israel, that's Israel, that's Israel. Now, what is he saying here? Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. You have a postcard picture, perfect face. Your head, man, it is just iconic. It is iconic. Now, if you ever want to be described as something that's long-lasting, enduring, and meaningful, and noticeable, recognizable, the word iconic is the one you want to have used for you, okay? Now, I don't want that, but, you know, some people in our day and age that want to be famous, and so the iconic label is something that's bantered about a lot. So she has that kind of face. He says, your hair is like royal tapestry. Now, he's complimented her hair before, right? How did he describe her hair before? It's like a goat descending from the mountains. Now, I'm thinking that that one didn't go over so well, because he doesn't repeat it here and he says, I better come up with a better one there. And so he comes up with a better one. And he says, he says uh, your hair is like a royal tapestry. Now, nothing more beautiful than a tapestry, right? I mean, well, there are some things that are more beautiful, but I mean, it's pretty significant. A royal tapestry, it's designed. It is, it is impeccably uh, taken care of. It is produced to the finest quality. And he says, that's what your hair's like, okay? You don't have bed head. Okay? You don't have bedhead. You have beautiful. Okay? Um, we're going to go fast here. Okay? I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. Oh, wait a minute. We've got to back up. Okay? Oh, no. Wait. I'm not even to that part. Rewind. Now, he goes on about this hair. He says, the king is held captive by its tresses. The king is captive. Have you ever seen somebody that just kind of captivated your attention? It's like you couldn't get your eyes off of it. You know, you just go, wow, I didn't, you know, and it doesn't have to be a man or a woman. It might be some uh, thing of beauty in nature. It might be, when I go to, uh, have you ever been to Multnomah Falls? 
Man, Multnomah Falls is this huge 600-foot waterfall in the Columbia River Gorge and uh, in Oregon, just out of Portland. It's beautiful. And when I first saw it, you hear it before you see it. And when you come up, you kind of come up this thing, it's, it's right off the road. So you just come up this little walkway, uh, and there it is. And you're just captivated. Your jaw drops, and you just go halfway, on, uh, maybe a third of the way up, there's a bridge that goes across up there, and you just go. I mean, you're captivated by this thing. You can't take your eyes off of it. And that's what he says her hair is like when the king looks at her. He says it's so captivating. And this word captivating means to be yoked or hitched, to bind or harness. He's so connected to this thing of beauty that he cannot take his eyes off of it. He says that's what your hair is like. He continues to compliment her. Why? Because he wants her not to experience the silence that may cause her to believe something bad when it's all good. He goes on in verses 7 and 8. Your stature is like uh, that of a palm, and your breasts are closer fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of the fruit. May your breasts be like the and your mouth like the best wine. He compliments every inch of her body. Okay? Enough said. Okay? Now, what's her response to all of this? What's her response? She could have said, oh, no, honey, I'm not all that. You know that. I'm not that great. I'm, you know, I'm just an average lady, blah, 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 blah. But she knows that he has gone the extra mile here. She knows that he has done all of these words to build her up, and she has been built up. And here's what she says. She says, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. I belong to him. His desire is for me. If you get one word from that that describes how she's feeling, she feels secure. She feels secure. She doesn't worry anymore about her, uh, you know, her dark skin or, oh, no, don't look at me. She's not doing any of that. She just goes, man, this dude loves me. He loves me. And I am his. No one else's. I am his. We have something special. We have something different. We have something that I will never want to get rid of. And so here she is. She says, uh, I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. She is secure in that relationship. Second thing, second truth that we want to find out today is, if you think of saying, here's the second thing that we want to do. If you think of something special, do it. If you think of something special, do it. Again, an undone gift is like a wrapping a Christmas gift and not delivering it. I think of something good to do for the people that I really love and care about, and I don't do it. It's like, oh, I got this gift, but I'm never going to give it to them. You know, they're never going to experience the benefit of that. And there's two things I want you to concentrate on, whether you're married, whether you have friends, whether you have children, whether you have parents. Here it is. Number one, purposeful time. Purposeful time. Have you ever gone on a date, you know, and you say, okay, let's go to the movie. Purposeful time or not? No, not purposeful time, huh? Okay, we're going to go to, um, we're going to go on a hike together. And we're going to go out in the wilderness and we're going to go on a hike together. Purposeful time or not? Okay, now the ladies are getting this. Guys, and I'm not getting much response from you. Okay, if we're, uh, if we're going to go to the mall and shop, purposeful time or not? 
<laughs> I got a response from the guys that time. <laughs> that's drudgery. That's pain. That's, oh, no. that's not even any of that. There's no. no. Okay. What's the difference between purposeful time and unpurposeful time? Purposeful time will always cause you to interact. Unpurposeful time will cause you to be in the same room. Uh, can you watch TV and have purposeful time? No, you can't. No. You're, you're, guys, we're watching ESPN. What's our wife doing? Reading a book. Yeah, reading a book. Cleaning. Did somebody say cleaning? <laughs> Oh, complaining. <laughs> Sounded a lot the same, cleaning and complaining. I don't know. Yeah, okay, they could, that could, and that could be kind of purposeful, too. Yeah. There's a purpose to it, but uh, probably no good in. Okay. But purposeful time will cause you to interact with each other and grow in your relationship. Unpurposeful time will be spending time in the same room, but never doing anything that promotes any significant relationship. Notice, uh, Song of Songs 711. I love 7-Eleven. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Now, this is her talking. And she says, let's go out of town. Let's get, let's, you know, get on Priceline or one of those last minute, you know, where you can get a last minute deal on a hotel room when it's real cheap, you know, and let's just, let's just go there and spend some time together, you know. Let's find one that doesn't have a TV. Let's find one that, you know, doesn't have a swimming pool or any of that stuff. Let's just find time where we can be alone together. She says, come, my beloved. Let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the village. They're going to go to a and b okay? And, and they're going to have time alone to where they can connect. Not to where they just experience the same room, the same place, but let us connect. In verse 12, she goes on. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded. Now, remember... What was, what was significant about wine? It was the blessings of God. Okay. Now, where does the wine begin? It begins as a grape in a vineyard, right? Let us go to the vineyard and see where the beginnings of God's blessings start. Now, do you recognize sometimes that when you, when you go through life, this, there's something that happens. It's not really, you might not see it as a blessing of God, but it's the beginnings of the blessing of God. And then it grows and grows and grows and grows. And ah, when, you, when I first met Cindy, I knew she was the blessing of God for me. I knew that. She did not. You know, she didn't reciprocate that. In fact, she didn't want to go on a second date with me. I thought that would get a little... I think, I think most of you agreed with her right there. I thought maybe some of you would say, oh, I didn't get that from you. Okay, and that was kind of hurtful. And in fact, I noticed earlier that when we talked about the band, when, when Kay talked about the band, there was applause. When she talked about Pastor Mike, there was this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I have fragile feelings today. You know, it's a little tough. But, but now back to the purposeful thing. And, and so the beginning of the blessings of God happen when you just, man, I think something could happen here. I think something good. And then all of a sudden it blossoms into a relationship. Cindy realized that she really did love me when I talked her into it. And, <laughs> and when I hit all the bad stuff and, and she finally married me. And, uh, and now <laughs> I see her as the blessing of God. And uh, I hope she thinks the same of me. But, but here it is. Let us go early to the vineyard to see if the vines have budded. 
if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. Okay? When I see the blessings of God, that will cause us to unite at a completely different level. Okay? When I see you as a blessing of God, we unite at a completely different level. Okay? And that's the important thing that she's trying to tell him here. We need to spend purposeful time to discover that. Second thing, okay? if, you, if you think of something special, do it. And secondly, uh, I want you to do purposeful time. Secondly, thoughtful actions. Purposeful time and thoughtful actions. In verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 13, the mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. She says, man, I haven't, I haven't, I've got a storehouse of stuff for you. I have a storehouse of actions that I'm going to perform, that we're going to do together, that we're going to experience as a married couple. There's a storehouse of these things. I've stored them up for you. I haven't shared them with all of my boyfriends that I had before you, and I haven't done this with them. I haven't squandered them. I've saved them up for you. And I think that's so valuable because it says, I don't do this for everybody. Okay, I haven't done this for anybody but you. I have stored this up for you. And thusly, I have thought about this. I have made a plan. And I haven't squandered these gifts on anybody else. And that's what these mandrakes were all about. Uh, they were gifts. Uh, and and some, of, some people believe that it had some kind of aphrodisiac effect. Uh, but, but these gifts are for you, not for everybody. Not for anybody. In fact, I really dislike when men talk about their intimate relationships with their wives, you know, and I dislike it when wives bag on their husbands, you know, that happens sometimes, not nobody in this church, uh, but, you know, I've heard that it happens, and I think, you know what, there's this thing called intimacy. Intimacy is what you share, the thoughts, the feelings, the actions that you share with only one other person, okay, and so that's what marriage ought to be built on. That's what this relationship ought to be built on. And there are things with your friends that you only share with them. Okay? There are things with your children you only share with them. There are things with your parents you only share with them. And that's what makes those relationships special and not common for everybody. Okay? Everybody does this, everybody does that. No. There are certain things that I reserve just for... In fact, there are certain things I reserve just for Zoe, you know, my granddaughter. You know, my change for one of them. You know, I reserve that for her. You know? And so, so there are just certain things that are just special for her. Now, so thoughtful actions. Um, number three, number three, if you want something different, be it. Be something different. If you want something different, be something different. Okay. Now, there are times in relationships where different people are the initiators of different things. So if you want something different, most of the time, what do we do? I want something different in my relationship. I want something, you know, special here. I want what? And so what we'll usually do is say, hey, would you do this? Okay. Would you do this and make our thing special, you know? Because it's all about me receiving, not about me giving. I want you to start reversing that thought process and say, okay, if I want something different, let me be something different that would deserve whatever it is that I want to receive. And so therefore, I want to be different and worthy of receiving that specialness, that intimacy that I want to have with my wife, my children, my parents, my friends, whatever it is. 
Uh, and notice, in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 1. If only you were to, uh, to me like a brother. Now, at first, you don't see this as a compliment, do you? Because what do they say about a sporting event that ends in a tie? Anybody know what they say about that? It's like kissing your sister. Thank you. It's like kissing your sister. You know, and, and so there's nothing. <laughs> you get it. I can tell. Okay. So when a sporting event results in a tie, it's like kissing your sister. And you know, it was nothing. Now notice what she says. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my brother's breasts, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. Now in this culture, what any public display of affection uh, was, was severely frowned on. In fact, women who would go out and, you know, if we would walk out you know, or in public, I'll just kiss Cindy or whatever, you know, uh, nobody thinks anything big about that. However, in this culture, if that happened, she would be seen as a prostitute, okay, because women don't do that, okay, that's a, the that's a thing prostitutes would do. And so, therefore, she's saying here, if you were my brother, then I could kiss you publicly. And so, what she's saying is, we have something different. We have something different. We have something, and remember earlier when she was talking about how um, they were, there were women that would go out and she wanted to know exactly where he was out uh, with his sheep and stuff and so that she could avoid that place because there were women who were prostitutes that would go out and frequent that area you know, at night so that they could ply their trade. And she said, I don't want that. I want something much different than that. I'm going to avoid being out there so I want to know where you are so I don't just happen upon you. Okay, and accidentally be there. Now, she's saying the same thing here. She said, if you were a brother, I could kiss you in public. But we have something different. We have something different. And I know that to do that in public would disparage you, and it would certainly disparage me. She's not more, more concerned about herself than she is for him, because she knows that she has the responsibility to honor his name and to make him known in the public place as a man of honor. She says, we want something different, so I'm going to be something different. Okay? I don't know if you get that or not, but if you want something different, be something different, because if you're just like everybody else, guess what? You're going to get what everybody else has. If you want a relationship just like everybody else has, you don't have to do too much special. You just have to kind of bump along and be selfish. Okay? And that's, that's what it, most everybody else has. So I want to encourage you today that I want you to Bring your actions in line with your intentions by doing these three things, okay? When, when you think something good, say it. So I want you right now to think of somebody that you need to say something to that's good about them, okay? Second thing I want you to do, if you think of something special, do it. Now, I probably should have changed some words on this. I wish I had changed the words from if to when, because if gives you the permission not to do it, doesn't it? I don't want to give you that permission. I want you to do it. So when you think of something good, say it. You might want to change those words. When you think of something special, do it. When you want something different, be it. Those three things today will bring your intentions and your actions into harmony with each other in a very positive direction.